Good morning. Glad you guys are here. I'm going to miss that song. I'm telling you right now, I like that. But closing out the series today called Flossom. So before we dive in, I want to extend a special welcome to those of you who are visiting us, or maybe you're just kicking out the tires around here and been here just a few times. We are glad you're here. I hope you find your time here both meaningful and enjoyable. Those of you watching online, glad you're tuning in. I hope you can be here with us sometime. We're, like I said, closing out this sermon series called Flossom. Awesome how an awesome God uses flawed people. The past few weeks we've been exploring different characters' lives that are in the Bible and trying to see if we can learn anything from them. The, the entire series really came out of a passage in your Bible called a section of Scripture called Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 11, it lists all these different people within the faith, kind of hall of famers like Abraham and Isaac and Moses. If you don't know who that is, that's okay if you stick around here long enough, you'll find out. But they're kind of pillars within Christianity and really Judaism for that matter as well. But because of their faith in God, the Bible tells us God used them to do some amazing things. And then Hebrews chapter 12 says, therefore, because we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And in other words, because these hall of famers are watching us, which I don't know if you've ever wondered if your uh, people who have, who have died and gone to heaven before you, have, if they could actually see you, but this uh, verse implies that they can, but not just them. Exemplary figures within the Bible can see you too. And the Bible says, therefore, because we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Which means... Aside from looking to Jesus, which always should be the first step, we need to learn from people who have come before us. So really, my hope in this series has been to encourage you that that no matter what you're going through or what you've gone through, God has a bigger plan and a purpose for your life. At the end of the day, you don't need to learn how to live a better life or become a better you. You have the opportunity to live a new life. God wants to give you a new life. Amen, somebody. That's great news. Because of God's grace and the free gift of salvation offered through His Son, Jesus, we can be made new, and it has nothing to do with our behavior. It has everything to do with who Jesus is. So I hope above all else, I have made clear over these past weeks as, as we've looked at David and Samson and Rahab that they weren't out here living an awesome life, and God was like, oh, we got to do something with people. No, it was, it was an awesome God taking flawed people because of their faith and doing something amazing. The same is true for you today. God wants to do something amazing with you. He wants to be in a relationship with you despite you. And all you have to do is have faith. God will do something extraordinary in your life and he will bless you as we will see today. I feel like I've saved the best for last because we're going to chat about a guy who almost never gets it right, a guy named Jacob. If you know his story, you know it's literally right up until the very end that Jacob quits making a mess of his life. In fact, it's probably worth noting that his name, Jacob, it means deceiver. It means cheater. 
The reason they named him that is he was actually a twin. And, and when his brother Esau came out first, Jacob was grabbing on to his heel. So as they pulled Esau out, Jacob came with him. I, I imagine his mom thought that was pretty awesome. But, but uh, nonetheless, they named him Cheater, Deceiver, Jacob. And if you read the story, you see that he lived up to this reputation. But this morning, I want us to take a look at a very single moment in Jacob's life, a very climactic moment. I want us to see the turning point where Jacob finally finds out what his life means. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. Go ahead and grab it. You're going to open up to the very first book in your Bible. It's called Genesis. You want the big number 32. Genesis 32. Using a phone, that's great. Find Genesis 32. I uh, want to ask you a question while you're getting there. Have you ever believed something only to find out that it was not true? Like you were so into it, and then at some point you found out that it was actually a lie. I'm not talking about some of the stuff maybe you were told as a kid and, and characters and things like that. I'm not going to ruin anything for anybody, but I'm just saying, uh, think bigger than that, okay? Think like life or death. For example, you remember when you found out what was actually in a hot dog? Like that was life-changing, was it not? I mean, you, you find out it's like pig guts and intestines and feet, and people talk about like nuts and bolts and stuff like that. And at first, you just, you're in denial. You're like, there's no way that's true. I'm not, I can't believe it. And then somebody shows you the video, and then you're like, man. So then you got to be like, well, I just don't care, okay? Because I'm, I'm eating the hot dog, because hot dogs are amazing. Y'all had a Chicago dog before? Amen. Somebody, I'm not talking about like Sonic. I'm saying legitimately in Chicago dog. I I don't care if there's excrement in there, right? You know, that thing is a party for my mouth. I, I love the Chicago dog. But there's some life-altering truths, the hot dog being one of them. Another one for me was eggs. I was almost 30 years old before I found out that there's not a chicken waiting in that egg for you at the store, okay? I don't I don't know what I thought necessarily. I thought maybe the refrigeration or something, but but those guys are on their way to hatching a a chicken. It's just it's just an egg. Okay, there's no chicken inside. You all didn't find that as life changing as I did apparently, but uh, it was it was like okay, uh, which I'll admit that uh, we as parents, we sometimes instigate these things that that we want our kids to believe and, and to find out that they're not true like the, uh, the whole one hour before you can swim deal. Uh, y'all know that's not true, right? Okay, that was mom wanting to take a nap or something between, or, or dad was buddies with the guy who owns the pool, and he was like, listen, I will give you $100 if you do not open this pool until 1 o'clock. And it was like the first pool ever, and so then entrepreneurs were trying to open pools, and, and everybody's like, oh, we just have to open at 1 o'clock, but, but it was really just some dude that said, I don't want you to, to open the pool. In a similar story... Uh, the other day, I told Lana Krispy Kreme was closed, uh, which if you all know, Krispy Kreme, that's, that's 24-7, 365. But she was hassling me about wanting to get some donuts, and I was like, ooh, babe, it's like one they just closed, 1 o'clock. I'm, so, I'm sorry, I, I don't know, what, we, I mean minutes, we missed it by minutes, babe. And, and so she, I said, like, remind me some other time. So shortly before nap, she tells, she tells mom, hey, dad was going to take me to Krispy Kreme, but it closed. And Laura looks at her kind of funny. And I just happened to be there. I was like, I, you know, I looked at Laura like with the eyes. And I was like, 
do not ruin this for me. Okay, if you tell her this is going to go bad for all of us, but she's four, she, she'll be fine. So the point is, the point is, it's not hard to believe a lie. That's, that's my point. We believe lies all the time. And when we roll this truth out into our spiritual lives, we, we realize that uh, there are many lies that people have believed. You can never really change your life unless something or someone comes in and reveals the truth to you. If they reveal that the fundamental foundations of your life have been wrong, they need to show you what your life means, what your real problem is, and what the real solution is. That happened for our boy Jacob. I'm hoping it can happen for you as well. Let's take a look. Genesis 32, we're going to pick it up in verse 22. Says, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. Pause. What same night? Like, what has led up to this? Why are they crossing a river? Why does he have two wives and eleven kids? Calm down, Jacob. You know what I'm saying? All good questions. Let's talk about the same night. In previous chapters, we learned that Jacob had to run away from his brother, his twin Esau. Jacob was quite literally running for his life because Esau had sworn to kill him. Now, if you think about that, that's, that's pretty hardcore. I'm sure you've fought with your siblings before. You've maybe even said something like, I hate you or whatever, but I'm, I'm wish, I, I'm assuming that you've never wished them dead. And even if you had, I'm, I'm also assuming that you weren't the one to try and kill them. Okay, just a show of hands. Anybody tried to kill their legitimately tried? Okay, nobody. Uh, the, the hard part for us also to probably understand culturally is the reason why Esau said, I am going to kill you. And, and pursued that end. That's because in our culture, we don't really have something comparable to a birthright or a blessing. The reason for the death threats was because Jacob had stolen Esau's blessing. Which again, it's hard for us to really comprehend that because there's nothing similar in American society. The, the closest thing that we can think of would be an inheritance, but for these guys, a blessing is much more than that. Keep in mind, this is not just a patriarchal society, but it's very traditional. And, and we're also dealing with a nomadic people. So in reality, your life was dependent upon the clan that you were associated with. And, and, and more specifically, your life was dependent upon the men in that clan. So, so when you got a blessing, you received your birthright. You were not just getting money. You were getting authority. He became like the CEO of an entire people group. The clan looked for you for leadership and security and wealth and food. And, and there was great responsibility that came with the blessing. Societal rules dictated that the firstborn son received this blessing, carried on the family name, the legacy of leading a clan. Except in our story, Jacob wanted that blessing, even though he was the younger brother, albeit by mere seconds. Now, in previous chapters, we also find out that God told Isaac, Jacob and Esau's dad, that he needed to bless Jacob. But Isaac is resisting that. He loves Esau. He wants Esau to carry on the family name, be the ruler of the clan. So God and Isaac are are kind of at odds on this, unbeknownst to Jacob or Esau. 
So fast forward a little bit. Isaac gets old, like really old. He can't see or, or really do anything. So he, he figures he better get his house in order. He better give the blessing and, and line up the son to take over the clan and so he can start making decisions and all that. But with, with his mother's help, Jacob poses as Esau, tricks Isaac into giving him the verbal blessing. Shortly after that happens, Esau comes in and says, I'm ready for my blessing, which causes Esau to, Isaac to find out what the shenanigans that Jacob and his mom had just pulled. So, but it's too late. Isaac realizes that this is what God wanted. So he refuses to take back the blessing that he'd already given to Jacob, which understandably makes Esau mad. So he says, the minute my father is dead, so is Jacob. I'm killing him. Well, now Jacob's scared. Esau is a big, burly, and hairy man and a skilled hunter. So Jacob runs away. Now, it's kind of a long story how how he has to live away from the land that he loves and away from the birthright and the blessing that he was promised, even if it was through deception. It's kind of interesting how Jacob has to work with his uncle and how he marries the two women, but we don't have time to get into that right now. What's important is Jacob decides to come back. Genesis 31, 3 says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers, to your kindred. I'm going to be with you. Go back. So Jacob, out of obedience to God, sets out. And even though it's been years since he's seen Esau, he sends some, uh, he doesn't want to show up unannounced, so he sends some of his servants on ahead. He doesn't want to just assume that Esau is going to let bygones be bygones. So he says, you guys go check it out. Come back and report to me. They quickly come back. They say, Esau's on his way. He's got 400 men with him. Uh Uh-oh, right? I mean, you're not thinking good things are going to come from that. So Jacob panics. He divides up the people that are with him into two camps. He imagines that if Esau's band of brothers kills the one camp, then the other camp can at least get away. Furthermore, he he uh, gives each camp all these gifts, money and clothes and sheep and, and cows and goats and, and the whole bit to, to try and appease Esau's anger. Just in case, though, he also divides up his family, which is where we're at now, that same night. You still with me? Okay. That same night, he took them. He sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Time out. Let's talk about what we learn here. You might jot this down if you're taking notes. From Jacob's life, we learn that you have to meet God alone. We have to meet God alone. If you really want to know how an awesome God uses flawed people, you have to meet God alone. Now, let me explain that because if you've been around here for any time at all, you know that that my primary goal is to get you not doing life alone. I just just did a sermon series called Don't Do Life Alone. My, My primary mission and job, I feel like, as your pastor is to get you into a small group where discipleship happens. So which is it, pastor? Right? Calm down, okay? I'm going to explain this to you because uh, the idea here is that you have to meet God alone. I'm going to give you three quick scenarios that will hopefully help you. Perhaps when you were a child, you were like me and you went to church, what felt like all the time. You had the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night deal. You did the whole thing. You were very active. It all seemed very real. But then when you went off to college, God was absolutely not real. 
It's very odd how that worked out. You were once really active. You were once very involved. You maybe even found the Bible sort of interesting. There were those felt boards with the guys who killed the giants and the lions, and like all of that was really cool to see, and you got to color the whole Noah deal and all the animals, but there was no need once you got into college. No more interest, no compulsion to pray or go to services or read the Bible. Literally, no need to practice anything within Christianity. Or maybe for you, it wasn't like that. Maybe you went to college, you got involved in Christian activities, you read books, you argued with your classmates about the truth of the gospel, and and you were very active. But then you got out of college, you took a job, you got in the real world, you, you got a mortgage, God became unnecessary. You didn't really have any immediate needs. I mean, you were getting taken care of financially. You were working hard. There was no point in praying. There was no point in worshiping. Life was busy enough. You didn't need the Sunday stuff. You know, I mean, you need a day of rest or something. So at the end, you just kind of became indifferent to the whole God or Jesus thing. Or perhaps third scenario, maybe you had a hard time in your life. It's very difficult, so you start to go to church, you hear people talking about Christ and what He means to them, and you hear all this great stuff, it fills you with hope, it inspires you, you get really uh, strength out of it, you love the whole situation, you believe them, you believe the message, you feel on board. Then something moves you away from that church or from that city, might, uh, so you might try a different church or here or there, but you suddenly find it all becomes unreal to you. You don't really need church anymore. You don't really need other people. You don't need to worship or pray. It just kind of becomes blah to you. Why? Why is it that we can be so alive for God in one minute and yet entirely indifferent the next? Here's why. Because it's possible to get caught up in the movement of God and not actually meet God yourself. To put it another way, it's possible to listen to other people's experience of God or encounter with God, and you can see the spiritual reality and joy in their life that fills you with with hope because you can say, yeah, look at that. God is real. God changes lives. Great things can happen, and you're so inspired, and you have hope, and you're lifted up, but you haven't had an encounter yourself. You haven't had an experience yourself. God, the gospel, Jesus has not invaded you, so you're living off other people's encounters. You're living off other people's experiences, other people's environments. So anytime those things change, you have no need for God anymore. And this is truth, but it's a sobering truth that you have to meet God alone. You have to meet God yourself. You cannot live off of what other people do and say. The problem is when you come to a place like New Anthem and you get to hear about uh, lives change and you see baptisms and all these things, you think you're experiencing God when you're experiencing other people's experience of God. It's possible to be filled with hope and see evidence there is a God because you see Him changing people's lives, but He's not actually changing yours. I don't want to belabor the point, but if your faith isn't truly your faith, if your time with God isn't actually your relationship with God, then you'll never get to live the life that God has for you. You'll never get to see these plans and purposes uh, unfold because eventually you'll wander away from Him. The bottom line is you have to meet God alone, which is where we found Jacob, wrestling with what we'll find out is God 
alone, but let's keep going. Verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. What's the lesson here? The lesson is that God will give you a new identity. When you meet God for yourself and you develop this relationship with God, He will give you a new identity. He doesn't just give you a new name like Jacob to Israel, He gives you a new identity. Jacob went from cheater, a deceiver, into a achiever. He moves from a zero to a hero within the Christian faith. It doesn't just happen with him. We see it over and over in Scripture. We saw it with Jacob's grandparents, Abraham and Sarah. It happens with Simon, who becomes Peter, the rock, and which helps build the church. It happened with Saul, who became Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, where before he was literally murdering Christians. It can happen with you, too. Come on, somebody. God wants to change your life. He wants to give you a new identity. Why? Because God doesn't see you as you are. He sees you who you can become. The problem is, sometimes He has to wrestle you into submission to get you there. Think about something. Jacob has been obedient up until this point. Right? God told him to go back to his hometown. He went. Furthermore, we see in previous verses that Jacob has been praying I'm praying to God. In fact, in the very first verse in chapter 32, it says, Jacob encounters some angels, has a conversation with them. This never happened to me that I'm aware of. So it feels like Jacob is kind of like, like high up on the whole religion thing. Like he's doing what he's supposed to be doing from a religious perspective. So listen, how does God respond to a man who's been obedient, who's seeking him in prayer? who literally fears for his life because he doesn't know what these 400 men are coming to do. So he seeks God out. He asks for help. He says, God, I'm, I'm following you. I'm doing what you asked me to do. How does God respond to that man? He assaults him. He gives him the stone cold stunner, right? I mean, he Rick flares his leg such a way that the figure four dislocates his hip. Any wrestling fans? I thought that would go over better than I thought it would. Right. Woo! Okay. Well, you got to be the man. Never mind. God wrestles this man. That's not the God that I hear about. If, if I'm doing what God asked me to do, shouldn't I be, be blessed? Shouldn't I have things going for me? You know, God, He's such a good God, loving God. He just cares about everybody, love and acceptance and the fairy dust here and there. Like, I'm not seeing this God anywhere else in Scripture, really. But yes and amen to the fact that God loves you and cares about you and bless you and wants to give you an identity. This just said, if you obey God and do everything right according to His will, and you pray and have your quiet time and you go to church and you study your Bible and you raise your hands in worship, God will cripple you for the rest of your life. Uncool God. Like who in their right mind, why is this even in there? Why is this verse and text in the Bible? Because listen... It must have happened. 
Like this must have actually happened. Who would have thought this up? What kind of idiot would think of a God like this? Who could have imagined a God like this? It must have actually happened. This must be the real God because nobody would invent a God who does something like this. This text, in a way that's more vivid than any other place I know of in the Bible, tells us that in general, God has to wrestle us into our new identity rather than comfort us into one. It's funny because if you look around at what's happening in the world right now with participation trophies and everybody wins and let's not offend anybody, let's handle everybody with kid gloves. This is not how God works. Brokenness always precedes breakthrough. That's a good preaching. Somebody's with me. God sometimes has to take you to the very bottom before He's going to lift you up to the very top. When does Jacob figure it out? When does this point of change happen in his life? It's only after the pain. It's only after Jacob wrestling with, with this mysterious figure for a, to a draw for hours that he suddenly sees the man reach over and touch his hip. And immediately there's incredible pain. He realizes his one leg is utterly useless. He suddenly realizes this person in his arms could have incinerated him at any time he wanted to. He wanted to, and that's the turning point. That's where he begins to not let him go, and he holds on tight. You think about it, when somebody attacks you and you're wrestling, you're wrestling to get them away. But look at verse 26. He won't let him go. He's changed his wrestling tactic. Now he knows who it is. He says, I can't let you go. I want you in my life. When did that change happen? It happened at the moment of pain, at the moment of weakness, the moment that he realized he was completely and utterly vulnerable and defenseless. It's kind of scary, isn't it? The God of the Bible is a God who says, I want to bless you, and in general, I want to change your life. I want to wake you up to who you are and who you you can become, and I want to wake you up to who I am as God, and and I want you to see the stupid things that you've been doing in your life, and, and almost the only way I can get you into a transformed life and a new identity is I'm going to have to wrestle you in. I can't comfort you in. That's just not the way most of us work. I know this is true in my life. I can distinctly remember standing in Cincinnati, Ohio at a youth conference and and hearing great worship and and praising God. And I can distinctly remember the people standing around me. It was my boy, Michael Mosqueda, and a girl, uh, Jody Clapp. And I remember feeling like I heard the voice of God say, I want you to be in ministry. I want you to be a pastor. And listen, I didn't tell a soul that I heard that voice. I was on my way to the league. I was going to the NBA. At worst, I was going to be a coach, okay? I didn't have time to, to be a pastor. And then when the, the dream of the whole NBA thing fell apart, I just still went to school and got my history and political science degree. I was going to coach. I was going to win a national championship. And they were going to beg me to become president of the United States. <laughs> I was going to oblige. That was the, the path that I honestly had for myself. Yet here we are. God wins. He literally wrestled me into the the ministry same as way He did to Jacob. Some of you are so attached to what you want in your life, there's no room for God unless He wrestles it away from you. 
I don't know who that's for, but I feel like God's speaking to somebody. You're so intent on holding on to the wrong things, God's going to have to pry it away from you. Listen to me. God, we cannot be who God intends us to be and at the same time hold on to what we think we should be. Please don't allow what you think you want to get in the way of who God made you to be. God wants to give you a new identity. He wants you to fulfill the plan and purpose that He has for your life. And trust me, it's better than anything you could ever imagine. So how's the story end? Well, God blesses Jacob. He and Esau ultimately reconcile. And and for the most part, things are good. Jacob's 11 sons do decide to kill the 12th son, Joseph, but I'll let you read that for yourself. So, so let's kind of wrap up the whole message like this. I started this morning by talking about how easy it was for us to believe a lie, which is true. We all have certain lies that we believe, and I think the biggest lie that people are believing right now is that they're in control of their lives which to a certain extent you are, your choices matter, how you live matters, but until you submit your life to God, you can never really be in control. Which seems paradoxical, doesn't it? You can't be in control unless you give up control. That doesn't make any sense, but it's kind of the point of the story. It was only after Jacob gave up his control and clung to God that God gave him a blessing. Here's how Jesus describes this in the New Testament. Luke chapter 9 says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That's the paradox. That you've got to give up the things that you want so God can give you the things that you need. Here's how you can write it down. Stop wrestling. Start responding. Stop wrestling. Start responding. I believe right now God's Holy Spirit is talking to you. He's revealing some things that you need to change in your life. Furthermore, I know that right now some of you are fighting hard against that. You don't want that. So listen to me. If you don't stop wrestling, God's only choice is going to be to break your legs. And I don't want to see any of you go through that. Trust me, I've been there. But I'd rather walk with a limp toward Jesus than run full speed away from Him. Come on, somebody. Like, if God breaks your legs, I hope it gets you to the point of turning to God instead of the other situation. But at the end of the day, if you'll just stop wrestling, start responding. How do I do that, Pastor? I don't know. It looks different for everybody. I can tell you what I'd like to see uh, within people in this body, and that's that, that you would start faithfully serving your church, that you would start using the gifts and talents that God has given you to make His glory known, and that you'll find joy for yourself. I'd, I'd love to see each and every one of you get involved in a small group where, where some discipleship can happen, because, because life change happens in circles, not rows, not for an hour on Sunday. And so I'd love for you to be serving and, and getting involved and, and living the plan and purpose God has for your life, but I don't know what that looks like for each and every one of you. I just know that if you'll allow God to do something in your life, He'll give you a new identity. If you'll respond in faith, He'll do something to bless you, and you'll never be the same because of it. So I'm going to close us in prayer, and I'm just going to pray that God reveals to you what your next step in this life needs to be. So with every head bowed, every eye closed this morning, let's pray. God, 
thank you for the opportunity that we have to come and gather in this place. Thank you for uh, revealing some hard truths to us this morning. God, these are not things that we should take lightly. The fact that, that we're trying to live our own life and you have something for us. So I'm just asking you right now to send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way to reveal to us what our next steps in this life need to be, to show us how we can start living for you. And God, I'm just praying that you'll give this blessing that you have promised, a blessing of a new identity, a a blessing of of a purpose in life, a sense of fulfillment in doing what you have called people to do. If there's anybody here this morning who hasn't received you as their Savior, God, I just ask that you send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way to speak to them right now, to place their trust in you. If that's you this morning, if you feel like, Pastor, you're talking to me right now, I would invite you just to to pray along with me because the Bible says that if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. And I know that some of you right now have have been in the experience of church and you've never really had an experience with God yourself. I'm giving you a chance right now by yourself to meet God for the very first time. In your heart, you can just say, God, I'm sorry. Thank you for speaking to me. Thank you for revealing yourself to me. Forgive me of my sin. Forgive me for trying to experience you in other people's experiences. Help me know you more fully. Help me live for you more faithfully. God, thank you just for the opportunity that we have to hear from you. And for these new lives. God, I'm praying for new identities. I'm praying for special divine blessing. I'm praying for for new marriages. I'm praying for new parenting. I'm praying for new finances. God, I'm just just praying that you'll speak to each person in a powerful way as we uh, prepare to, to worship you through our tithes and offerings. It's all in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.